Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Prime Minister has offered the province's $14 billion to help restart the pandemic or from the pandemic shutdowns. Not nearly enough is uh, going to be the response because Ontario is already saying it needs $23 billion. Let's find out what uh, the chairman of the Council of the Federation, that's the premiers of Canada and the territorial leaders, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, has to say about that and other things. Mr. Premier, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Always good to talk to you, Roy. It's been a while. It has been a while. So let's get your thoughts on uh, on Mr. Trudeau saying just a couple of days ago, $14 billion for the provinces in order to help the provinces recover or get started again after the pandemic. How far is that going to go? Well, I think first and foremost, most premiers would be appreciative of, uh, of the initiative of putting some dollars uh, forward. Um, however, I think many of the premiers, if not virtually all of them, would like uh, to have some latitude to address some of the flexibility or some of the uh, the, the pressures uh, that we're having uh, in this very broad, diverse, and geographically large nation. And they are different in, in different areas of, of the nation, whether it be the economic pressures, whether it be the... Uh, uh, the, the healthcare pressures. And I think first and foremost, I would say that this, this falls short. Uh, Doug has indicated, uh, in Ontario, or pardon me, Premier Ford has indicated in Ontario they need about $23 billion alone there. Um, so it, it is going to fall far short of what is required across the nation. And when you look, uh, further into the program of the eight, uh, um, areas where they want to invest, uh, the, the vast majority of the funds are going to end up in uh, a sick pay program, a temporary sick pay program. And, um, you know, so there really isn't going to be large amounts of funds that are that are going to be, well, it'll still be some, but it, it won't be near the $14 billion that will be available to, to really address with some degree of flexibility what um, what we are, are really dealing with in our respective regional jurisdictions. So, Premier, when you when you talk about that sick day program that uh, the Prime Minister has suggested and which has been pointed out to him as just not going to work, that it really just downloads the pressure on the provinces and on employers, um, what, why are they, I should, maybe I shouldn't be asking you, I should be asking him, but why are they not, but he won't come on the program, why are they not getting the message? It just doesn't, it's, it, it's not going to work, is it? It really isn't worth well, uh, the time this, it's given. Uh, what hap- yeah, this is what happens when uh, uh, poor policy meets uh, ideology, and, and we're seeing some ideological decisions come out, uh, um, being funded, quite frankly, with uh, um, Canadian residents' Canadian residents' money. Um, you know, the, the, the costs uh, that provinces are facing um, are not many of them are in the healthcare area, but they go, they go beyond that as well, and, and they're going to go on for some while. Um, most areas of this nation have idled back uh, their surgical capacity, their elective surgical capacity. Uh, anyway, we're no different. We're ramping that up now, but we have a backlog of surgeries that we are going to have to get through that are, uh, is going to take some, some investment by provincial governments. We have uh, a federal government that, you know, and this might maybe just exemplify how uh, small um, albeit $14 billion is a large amount of money, but how small uh, this is to the challenges that, that are being faced. We, we have uh, a, a federal government that a number of years ago 
uh, funded was a full funding partner uh, with respect to healthcare at a rate of a 50% of, of the funding came from the federal government. Um, that has fallen over subsequent governments, yes, uh, but it continues to fall under this government uh, down to an area of about uh, 20%. And so uh, when you see um, targets in the healthcare area of, of this $14 billion being prioritized into the healthcare area, what that is, is attempting to do is, and is really an acknowledgement uh, that the federal government has fallen short as a, as a funding partner uh, for Canadian health care. And it's the provinces that have picked up the slack, found efficiencies, and, and quite frankly have filled the funding gap that the federal government has missed. Yeah. Were you surprised that Mr. Trudeau told the United Nations, without engaging the Canadian Parliament, and as a minority government PM, that Canada would step up with support for developing nations? At the same time, only four hours have been confirmed for parliamentary questioning of Mr. Trudeau's more than $150 billion in pandemic-related spending, which is money the taxpayer is going to have to fund. Were you surprised at all of this? Well, unfortunately, I'm maybe not totally surprised. Um, this, I think, also speaks to the underlying concern that, that all premiers have. And I think, in fairness, uh, most, if not all Canadians have, is, is we do understand we're in the midst of a pandemic. We do understand there needs to be uh, investment at all levels of government, and we're 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 no different here in Saskatchewan. We're going back into our our legislative uh, sitting here to pass a budget. Uh, the federal government is not passing a budget uh, in any time any any time in the near future. Uh, we're going in uh, to do that. Um, but the underlying concern that we have is yes, we need to invest, um, but we need to focus on where the maximum efficiency and the maximum outcomes of that investment will. Uh, will arise. Uh, this is this is our money as Canadians, and it's going to have to be paid back at some point in time. So the investment needs to be uh, very focused to deal with the pandemic costs, to deal with the hardships that people are are uh, are facing on a short term basis, but also it needs to be very very focused on ensuring that the economy can go and flourish so that we can get back to the, mecha- the economic level at which we were when we entered this pandemic in, in Saskatchewan and, and in across this nation. But give us the opportunity to start growing that economy again. That's where the jobs come from. That's where our opportunity comes from. And that needs to be the focus from here on is how do we uh, give the Canadian economy the best chance of success uh, post this pandemic. Yeah. And the problems that this country had prior to the pandemic haven't gone away. The regional issues that have to be dealt with. You and five fellow premiers sent a letter to the prime minister warning him he was negatively affecting national unity with bills C-48 and C-69. Those sorts of situations and concerns have not been swept away. And now we have uh, essentially a shuttered parliament, which is not the way to proceed, at least in my view. Premier, before we uh, let you go, your thoughts, please, on uh, the presence of um, systemic racism in Canada and uh, and on the, the rallies that are taking place right across this country. Well, I, I, I fully understand behind uh, these rallies, uh, why they're taking place, and I, and I, I deeply sympathize and, and they hear uh, the individuals that are, that are attending these rallies that are uh, a response, I think, to the incidents in Minneapolis with, uh, with George Floyd, but, but also a response to a broader conversation that is uh, it's a sensitive conversation, but it's an important one for us to have, um, not only at the government level, but as, as society, and, and not only in, within our, our police uh, forces either, but it is an important conversation for us to have. And there's some action, uh, quite frankly, uh, that needs to be taken in uh, each of us, um, much like this pandemic, each of us as individuals, we bear a personal responsibility for the choices that we make each and every day. 
uh, whether that be gathering in large groups, whether that be uh, doing things that, that might increase the risk of, of, yes, the spread of COVID-19. But we also uh, bear that same responsibility in how we treat uh, the people that we meet each and every day, whether it be part of our part of our work uh, or whether it be in a, in a personal setting. And I always say we need to remember to treat people with precisely the same respect uh, that we expect to be treated with uh, in return. And, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen all of the time. And we, at the end of the day, this comes down to a personal responsibility for each and every Canadian. I think we're relatively good at this, but all too often there are some exceptions and we need to have some accountability in those situations. I think that's excellently said. And uh, we, we also, and I mentioned this to a friend in a phone call last night, I said one of the things that troubles me is that we have lost in some ways the art of communication. We've become so dependent on our technology that actual conversation between people doesn't take place in the face-to-face reality that we had for so many decades and centuries. We pick up the phone. People do it across the room. They don't even talk to each other across the room. They send each other texts when they're 10 feet apart. One of the things that we have to relearn, and it's just a fundamental part of it, the whole issue that we're facing, is communicating, being able to talk to each other. The, the difference in the effectiveness of a virtual parliament versus an in-person parliament. Exactly. If there is any positive that's coming out of this pandemic, it's the fact that I see, and, and I, I see it across the nation, uh, families, uh, friends, they are spending time together. They are looking one another in the eye. They're having supper together. And I, I hope that if there's any positive that comes out of the past number of months, uh, that that family reunification and communication is, is part of that that stays with us. Yeah. So we won't have people saying, uh, somebody at the table saying, who are all these people? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or could you put your phone down and quit texting. <laughs> exactly. Premier, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Anytime, Roy. You have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan, the chair of the Council of the Federation, the premiers and the territorial leaders of this country. The number one story not only in the united states and canada but around the world and that is the protest demanding an end to anti-black racism also violence and uh, anti uh, racism against minorities and there has been as you know and we've all seen the activities and the actions in the united states which has included violence and rioting and this after the death of george floyd in minneapolis Tracy Brown is the president of the National Top 100 Black Lawyers in the United States. She's also a partner at the Cochrane Firm nationally in the U.S. She specializes in employment, discrimination, civil rights, and police misconduct matters, and was senior counsel at the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, and before that, the deputy district attorney for the Los Angeles County. She's also the author of The Life and Times of Ron Brown, biography of the late U.S. Secretary of Commerce, um, Ms. Brown's father. Ms. Brown, thank you very much for taking the time. I was a big fan of your dad's. Hi, Roy. Thanks so much for having me. I was a big fan of my dad's as well. I guess. Uh, just a <laughs> just an excellent excellent politician, had a great grasp of what goes on in the world, went on in the world, also a national NFL football player. So, Now, uh, multi-skilled individual, as obviously are you. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate you having me. So as one of the most prominent black civil rights and police misconduct lawyers in the United States, how did George Floyd's killing on the street in broad daylight in Minneapolis by a then still police officer, how much did that shock you or even surprise you if it did? 
Roy, it's very disheartening, and it's disheartening for a lot of reasons. I think because this particular um, death under you know police custody was caught on camera and on video for the world to see, there are many people who are shocked and horrified and outraged. I'm one of them. However, it sort of feels like a broken record. We've seen it before. Um, George Floyd was not the first. He's not been the only, and unfortunately, he may not be the last to be a person of color who dies um, in police custody. Um, and as we know, uh, seeing things on video sort of gives us a feeling of, oh, okay, so maybe there's a little protection there. There's a little bit of uh, possibility that the police won't um, behave in this way uh, now that they know that so much is captured on video. But unfortunately, we've seen that's not the case. Um, these things happen with the police seeing the video cameras, seeing the phones of, of everyday citizens capturing these things, and it still continues unabated. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened by the death of George Floyd and the length of it, I think, is what has really um, galvanized so many people to really think about what nine minutes is, to think mm-hmm. about someone having the life squeezed out of them for nine minutes uh, yeah. on video is really an outrage. One of the most horrendous things I've seen, period, anytime, anywhere. Uh, but you're we can't involved. forget the countless people whose deaths aren't captured on video. Um, and that's what we have to remember that we're, we're fighting against as well. There are many people who have died in police custody where there were no cameras, and often the police are not held accountable, video or not. Have you been involved in a recent case that you could talk to us about uh, that involved uh, police interaction with the black community? Sure. Um, you know, there's there's an ongoing case right now in New York um, against the police department in the city. Um, our client is the family of a, of a man by the name of Anthony Paul, um, who was African-American, mentally ill, um, and died in police custody. And what, what I think about when I think about our current cases, which unfortunately there are too many of them, even still, is that the founder of our firm, Johnny Cochran, who many people um, knew and admired, worked on police misconduct cases in the 1960s. Um, one of the very first cases in uh, Los Angeles that was um, prosecuted was a man by the name of um, Leonard, Leonard um, Deadweiler, who was driving his pregnant wife to the hospital uh, and the police said he was weaving, chase him down, and shoot him at point-blank range with his pregnant wife in the car. Uh, and Mr. Cochran um, prosecuted or, or pushed forward that wrongful death case, and the police officer was acquitted. And here we are, 54 years later, and often uh, police officers are either not charged at all, like in the Eric Garner case in New York, uh, where he was choked to death uh, in a chokehold due to the police using excessive force because they believed him to be selling cigarettes illegally. Uh, That led to a death sentence and police weren't prosecuted. So there's so much work to be done. Um, And my firm, one of the things we're doing at the Cochran firm is we've started this rapid response team to have folks on the ground right away across the country, lawyers, forensic pathologists, police experts, everyone who is important in making sure uh, police officers are held accountable. 
when misconduct occurs. Ms. Brown, what's what's wrong with American society, which again, which constitutionally grants freedoms and equal rights and civil rights laws, uh, as I said a minute ago, were passed during those terrible days of bloodshed in the 1960s. What's going on? Why why do we have the reality, that, that, or why do you have the reality that you have? Right. I, in America, obviously, we have a very complicated history of race relations. Um, it's ingrained. I mean, we know that babies are not born racist. Uh, the children learn the behavior. They learn it from their parents. They learn it from their environment. Uh, they learn it when they're taught in subtle and not so subtle ways that people of another race, usually a black and brown race, are less than or lesser than they are. And when that happens, they start to see black and brown people as less human, less important. And so when things happen, that even they would think are unfair to black and brown people, it might not have as much of an impact on them because those people are seen as other than and less than. And it is so difficult to fight that. And it really starts at the beginning, how we're educating children, um, what messages we see, what images our kids are growing up seeing as, you know, standard, everything from standards of beauty to how people are treated. Uh, it's, and I hope that what's happening now is really about a reckoning in our society to make significant change. I've had so many difficult conversations over the last two weeks with my own white friends who have been silent on a lot of these issues related to race. And even with the George Floyd killing, they mostly speak about the protesters and the outliers who have rioted as opposed to why are they protesting? Why, did, why are they out there to begin with? They're out there because of how black and brown people have been treated by society and by police for generations. And so the change that we're, we're seeking is going to be slow. It's going to be gradual. And we know that it has to be about the hearts and minds. I mean, a case that people know about all over the world is Brown versus Board of Education from 1954, the desegregated public school. Yet... That did not mean that white people going to school with black people all of a sudden had a kumbaya moment where they all embraced and loved each other. It just meant that black people were allowed to go to schools with white people. That's all it meant. And we have to really focus on one of the things that's important to me, which is impact litigation, meaning cases that have an impact beyond that specific case, cases that are really starting to change the hearts and minds of people and make folks look at everyone more equally. Yeah. I asked a couple of people yesterday on the program if they thought there would be significant change or really recognizable change within a year. In other words, where will we be in a year? And after the show, I thought, well, it's going to take longer than that. Hopefully there'll be, you know, some change, that, uh, real change that, you, that, that will be measurable, but it will take, as you said, it'll take time. But looking at the situation as it is now, that's, that almost starts to sound like an excuse. Yeah. Does it not? I mean, I think, well, I think it has to be hit from so many angles. And when you look at um, how the police is treated in terms of what protects them in these cases, they have very strong police unions in the United States so that even if an officer um, has, has um, been involved in, a, in, a, in police misconduct, their other um, examples of police misconduct in their history is not revealed mm -hmm. or... 
if they're not charged, they're able to, um, whether they're charged or not, they're able to keep their pension. Um, so there's so, there's so many ways we need to attack this and it's not going to be easy. The work is going to continue and we have to be committed to it. Are you confident that within the police, overall police body in the United States, that there is a significant number, maybe a majority, I don't know, I'll just ask you the question, that there is a significant number of police who are exactly what you want them to be? Not enough, and they don't speak out vocally. So we have something that's referred to as the blue wall of silence, where (laughs) police officers circle the wagon and protect another officer who's accused of misconduct instead of speaking up about what they've witnessed themselves. And that has got to stop. So I don't really accept the bad apple argument, because if you don't stand up for something that is wrong, then we're all bad apples. And I think that applies to police officers and our ordinary citizens. I mean, some of the signs, as you as you see in these protests across the world, across the world, say silence equals violence. And it's true. By standing silent, you are contributing to the violence that we're seeing against black and brown people every day. We all have to speak up. We need white allies more than anything in this fight. Um, we had a situation in this country, and which, which developed over the last number of years, 10 years plus, where uh, female officers, women officers um, within the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or National Police Force, had been uh, for decades systemically sexually harassed sexually abused it turned into a class action lawsuit which the government settled a hundred million dollars was was promised and i heard from one of the women actually the woman who led was the first to come forward and uh, and and to to lead the public information campaign on this issue this morning she sent me an email this morning just out of the blue hi roy how are you uh and and i thought (laughs) just as you were talking that's what happened within the rcmp The women were being abused, but there was a wall of silence. Nothing was being said. And I heard later on, I'd I'd get emails from former RCMP officers telling me, I'm sorry I didn't say something. I should have said something. I'm ashamed I didn't speak out. I saw what happened. So everybody has to take responsibility. How do you, let me, let me ask you in the minute we have left. There's been a lot of talk about defunding police in Minneapolis. They're saying actually there's been a motion brought forward by a councilman and it's been supported by the president of the city council to abolish the police. What do you think is necessary? I, I, I don't believe that is the solution. I mean, obviously there are <clears throat> many things that happen in our society that we want, um, a police intervention on. Uh, domestic violence, for example. Um, and so in terms of de- defunding the police or getting rid of police forces, I think we need to make police officers accountable and we need to bring them on board in this battle. They are citizens too. And just as you described with um, the Canadian female officers, some of them have been profiled. There, there are African-American and Latino police officers who themselves have been profiled and stopped and frisked when they're off duty. So we have to recognize that this is something that impacts and affects all of us. And having the police officers that we've seen on television sometimes um, take a knee in protest, stand and walk with the protesters in some communities, I think that goes a long way towards, you know, changing the culture within a lot of these police departments. Ms. Brown, I thank you for the time. I hope you'll come back. Thanks again. Good talking to you. 
We're joined by the former ambassador to China for Canada, David Mulroney. Mr. Mulroney, thank you so much for taking the time. I've been trying to explain what, what happened. So perhaps can, can you tell us what you were prepared to tell the Parliamentary Special Committee on Canada-China relations in March of this year? Sure, and thanks uh, very much for this opportunity, Roy. I've been invited to speak at the end of March, and I prepared a very short statement uh, to begin my my commentary. And I said, you know, that we say that truth is the first casualty of war. Well, truth seems to be the first casualty of our China policy. We've got to learn and develop the inclination to speak honestly and directly, because so much of what we say about China amounts to flattery. And we end up confusing not the Chinese, but Canadians, including Canadian public servants. So I said, stick to the facts, tell the truth. You've got to be prepared to work very hard on policy coherence, making sure that all the parts of the government that are involved in China work in a coordinated way. And I said, that starts with our ambassador. And I mentioned that I had some concerns about that. And I said that an effective policy needs to be owned and directed by the prime minister. I said I had some concerns on that score, too. And finally, I said, you know, too often Canadians say, well, you know, there's a real cost to this. We used to be a country that was willing to, to pay the price and bear the burdens. We're, you know, 75 years ago, we were storming the beaches of Europe. Big, important things come at a cost. There will be costs to getting China right, but our sovereignty and autonomy as a country is, is worth it. Well, exactly. And we have uh, a government that uh, insists that it is there to protect human rights. And we look at what China is guilty of, a terrible human rights record now placing hong kong firmly under its thumb uh threatening uh taiwan there are going to be simulated attacks on taiwan this summer and uh, china has directly threatened canada over the detention of meng wanzhou while two of our canadian citizens the two michaels are imprisoned in retaliation for the detention of uh, miss joe um th- this is something that we you know it's very confusing to me because i would expect our federal government to stand up, to do what they say they're going to do. But there is no inclination, is there? Well, or no apparent inclination. There's no apparent inclination. And one of the reasons I, I was you know, enthusiastic about speaking to the committee was that it was beginning to do the job of bringing you know, alternative perspectives and different voices to be heard. People who, you know, they brought in some really distinguished Americans who you know, spoke very frankly and bluntly about what's happening uh, in terms of China and the wider world. And they brought some Canadian experts who were also uh, very tough-minded on that score. What's happening in the rest of the world, in not just the U.S., but in the U.K. and Australia and Sweden and the Czech Republic and other places, is they're finally beginning to accept the fact that China's not a friend, that it's an often adversarial partner, and that they have to do some tough work of decoupling and really rethinking the relationship. And I was hoping that given all the evidence that you've just, and all the things that you've just mentioned, this long extended period since the detention of the two Michaels, that Canadians uh, would begin to be thinking about those things too. And it was beginning to happen, and then um, the the committee got shut down, and, and we're missing that opportunity. Well, we know that China carries a big stick, and they're not afraid to wave it. Uh, Sam Cooper, who's uh, just an outstanding investigative journalist with Global News, has, uh, has has told us he's done the homework. He's reported the stories, and we've spoken to Sam on a number of occasion and occasions. And just today, Ambassador Mulroney, there's a there's a story out of the UK where the Chinese ambassador is threatening the UK if Britain moves um, 
to, to remove Huawei from its 5G network plans. China says it maybe wouldn't build nuclear power plants and end high-speed rail network construction. I would think that that should actually remind us that we should divorce ourselves from our essential services and products being relied on China. That's exactly right. And what you're seeing in the UK is the inevitable result of a get friendly with China campaign uh, managed by the Cameron government in which they you know, decided to do deals on high speed rail and nuclear, of all things. And of course, this puts you in this position. China turns the tables. But what's also really important and important for Canadians to remember is China's got it's threatening the UK. It's got a beef with Australia. It's got big problems with the United States. And it's also engaged in a tense standoff with India up in the passes of the Himalayas. It's got a lot of problems. And one of the things that we need to do is to have the courage to speak to our allies and understand that China can't take on everybody at the same time. But a lot of what China does, it waves the big stick, but it doesn't always use that stick. And we've got to be prepared to stand up for things that are important for values and for Canadian interests. Yeah, and the Chinese ambassador to Canada has threatened this country again. And his predecessors have done That's that. right. shown no respect for Parliament, for people like premiers. Premier Kenny is taking it, uh, taking a lot of heat from the consulate, behaving in very undiplomatic ways. But a lot of this is bluster. We don't have to go out of our way. We don't have to insult China or behave in irresponsible ways, the ways that China behaves. But we've got to embrace the truth and stick to the facts. We didn't have to say, as our ambassador said, that there's a lot to commend in China, or China is to be commended for its re- response to COVID-19. Don't go beyond what we know. In fact, it wasn't commendable. So the first thing we need to do is to restrain our language and speak honestly to Canadians. <laughs> I also find it very disturbing that you and Ambassador Saint-Jacques, who was on the air with us last weekend, uh, who followed you in China as the ambassador, you were actively discouraged by the current government from speaking to media and saying what you're actually saying to me today. You know, that's um, I, uh, that's right. I got the call uh, because of something particular, and the particular commentary I had made in the media was that I thought our travel advisory, the, the advice that the Canadian government gives to traveling Canadians, about China was out of sync with the way the government was behaving. And I said the travel advisory had actually been upgraded and made you know, more dire, more stark, but the government was still pumping delegations, promoting visits and exchanges as if nothing had happened. And I said, they're, they're, that's, that's out of sync. Canadians should be more careful. And I think calling that out brought the, you know, brought the intervention. I, I ignored it. I'm not about to you know, check with the department before I, I make comments about China. I try to do it responsibly. But it was really that neurologic point, which is, I think, a really important one. We're still not telling the truth. The government isn't behaving uh, according to its, its travel advisory. It's behaving as if it was the good old days and, you know, we've got this sort of fake friendship with China. That's behind us. That, that didn't exist. And let's not pretend it does exist. Ambassador Mulroney, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for being uh, clear with Canadians about the need for an adjustment a significant adjustment in our relationship with China, the Canadian relationship with China. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, and we really need Parliament to get back to work on this. We sure do. Thank you. David Mulroney is the former Canadian ambassador to China, joining us uh, on the Roy Green Show. He's also a McDonald Laurier Institute Advisory Council member. 
Minority Government Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, commits to the United Nations that Canada will assist developing countries deal with consequences of the pandemic financially, but without placing this commitment before Canada's Parliament. He can't because, well, he and the NDP agreed to essentially shutter Parliament because of the pandemic, so we were told. Meanwhile, Mr. Trudeau's $150 billion-plus spending on pandemic relief in Canada will be available for parliamentary debate for a mere four hours on the 17th of June, much to the dismay of the parliamentary budget officer. With a minority government, is Trudeau essentially shelving this parliament? Yes. Is he making the decisions for Canada without the other party's involvement, without any consultation with the rest of us? Appears to be the case. And has the Conservative Party of Canada devolved into a parody of a federal official opposition which received more popular votes than the Liberals last October the 21st? A parody. Professor Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Sriyama School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and has authored many tremendous books about this country about our political reality and uh, indigenous reality and northern Canadian reality. Well, Ken, I don't know, quite frankly, I don't know where to start. Um, We have the parliament that we have under the circumstance that it was delivered to us, but how do you see what's going on? Well, you know, we always sort of start off, because we're really good Canadians, we always start off by sort of saying, well, it is, a, it is an emergency and it is a crisis and we have to be careful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's put all those caveats on the table in the first instance. Uh, but once you get past that, if you're not appalled, uh, you're not paying much attention. Uh, this is the largest and most rapid expansion of government spending in Canadian history in a short period of time. Um, it requires thoughtful care and analysis. Uh, it is the kind of thing that needs review before the money goes out the door. Uh, there are some egregious errors that have already been made in the process. The allocation of uh, sort of automatic $300 to all senior citizens, regardless of their income, um, is actually a- 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 attracting mockery across the country. Um, five minutes of good, thoughtful conversation in the House of Commons would have actually stopped that one in its tracks. Uh, but we haven't had that conversation in the House of Commons. It's been just appalling. So uh, two things stand out about this. One is the the government of Canada's sort of willingness to go ahead without seeking approval. Um, We always use the war analogy talking about what's going on, but in fact with the war analogy you had uh, everybody in the country 100% behind what was going on, very strongly supportive of what was happening, well informed about the developments that were taking place. Um, In this one you have nothing of the sort. We get occasional, almost daily announcements of new expenditures by the by the prime minister, but no, no real analysis behind it. And I'm equally, whatever frustration I have with the government is even equal, if not stronger, for the opposition parties, particularly the Conservatives and the and the NDP, who've allowed this to happen. Um, we should have had the loudest protests we've seen possible in a sort of a pandemic environment of people who insist, that in fact, Parliament operate and that decisions follow in a normal course. Uh, as close as we could possibly get. And the fact that we haven't had it actually speaks very poorly of Canadians. Um, if you, you know, listen to the radio programs, and, as I do, and you watch the newspapers and listen to the news, this is getting virtually no attention. This is one of the most scandalous abuses of parliamentary power in Canadian history. And we're not getting any kind of realistic response 
The public is not up in arms. The public's not frustrated. We're all saying, well, you know, the money's still coming, so I guess it's okay. And this disturbs me greatly. Canada deserves better. Buying public opinion. That's the way I see it, is just buying public opinion or buying silence from the public. And I don't know, you would know better than I, have we ever experienced anything like this as far as the parliamentary shuttering is concerned? That's the word I'm using. Have we ever experienced anything like this in this country's history? Not, not really. I mean, it, you know, if we've never had a pandemic like this that happens in the middle of a parliamentary session and shuts everything sort of you know, down solid. Uh, this one is particularly unusual in the sense that we have lots of alternatives. Uh, we have video conferencing, we have telephones, we have all sorts of ways of getting people involved. So this one, the, the shuttering is unnecessary. It would not take some technological people very long to figure out a way to, to, to get around the, the, the fact that people can't and shouldn't perhaps be in the House of Commons on a, on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, it, it, ironically, you know, we have had enormous debates in our Canadian history, Trans-Canada Pipeline in the 1950s, for example, over the use of closure over shutting down Parliament without full debate. And, and of course, the use of closure has become more common over time. Uh, we actually truncate debate r- routinely now, to the point where nobody seems to be very upset about it. And I think in some ways the, the turning point was when we started to televise the House of Commons and people could see how, how rambunctious and kind of unproductive though that debate actually was. Uh, sadly, if they actually watched uh, the House committees and the Senate committees, and saw Parliament actually in its more deliberative functions, they would be really impressed with how thoughtful the Canadian parliamentary process can be. Uh, but, but this is unprecedented in my experience and very frustrating, but I think equally I'm probably just as frustrated with the fact that Canadians are being so complacent and quiet about it. Um, one-on-one view is that they, people have been bought off. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians are not getting direct government subsidies out of this, although many, many millions are. Um, and, and I think we've just sort of bought into the idea that, that Parliament is shut down because of the pandemic and there's nothing we can do about it. Other countries are having incredibly robust debates in Australia, New Zealand, in Norway, in Sweden, uh, in the United Kingdom, for example. The United Kingdom is a good example. Um, you're, you're seeing the, the parliamentary leaders uh, debating with each other. You're seeing the opposition parties uh, making more representations. I've heard more of the opposition uh, from the Labour Party leader in, in the United Kingdom than I have from the Canadian parliamentary opposition. Um, just by following the news on a regular basis. I mean, yeah. what's going on? This we got to do better. Let me take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk some more with Professor Ken Coates and really where's the money going that Mr. Trudeau is promising to the developing countries and how much is going to the developing countries and what's he doing for the uh, the emerging, re-emerging Canadian economy? When, uh, when, when we come out of the pandemic, he's offering $14 billion to the provinces and the territories to assist them. We spoke with Premier Mo about that about an hour ago. So what, where's, where's the plan for Canada? Where's the plan for our uh, economic recovery? Don't we have the right to know? Shouldn't the Prime Minister be speaking in Canada's Parliament? Shouldn't we be having parliamentary sessions at this particularly uh, new and different and, frankly, dangerous time? Why aren't we having this? Why aren't, why aren't we being told what's going on? Why isn't there debate, uh, debate in our parliament? Why only four hours to debate $150 billion, at least, that he will have spent on the 17th of June? MPs get four hours to debate this. The parliamentary budget officer isn't happy about that. What is going on? And what is going on with the conservative parties, uh, of Canada. I have no idea. I, I get emails from CPC supporters saying, you're being too hard on them. No, I'm not. 
No, I'm not. The Conservative Party of Canada has essentially disappeared. They had more popular vote than the Liberals on October the 21st. The Liberals won the election with the lowest popular vote for any federal election-winning party in the history of Canada, and the Conservatives have essentially disappeared. And then they give you the argument, well, we have the leadership thing going on, and, and the others, the pandemic going on. Get off your butts. Get out there and represent the people of Canada. Mr. Scheer sent out an open letter. How many Canadians even knew about it? Is that the media's responsibility because or fault? Because they're not reporting on the Conservatives? That's the easy answer. But the Conservatives should be making the news, should be driving the the opposition to what the Liberals are doing. Ken, when it, when it comes to this, this whole issue of Canada stepping up, according to Mr. Trudeau, talking to the UN, to provide assistance to developing world, he says that's our responsibility. The, the cynic in me keeps hearing the words security council seat, security council seat, security council seat. Am I too cynical? Uh, not really. Um, everything in the United Nations is political. It's supposed to be this wonderful humanitarian uh, enterprise where we all gather together and look, see, search, for, search for peace and justice and for all humanity. Uh, but it is one of the most intensely political places on the planet. Um, I think it's a complete waste of time. This is a personal observation about going after a Security Council seat. Some colleagues of mine in the in the academic world think it's a good idea to sort of have Canadian influence. I, I think not. Um, we spend a lot of money on it directly, a couple of million dollars, but we're probably making a whole series of other commitments uh, through all of this other uh, COVID-related funding that will be come out after the fact. Um, I think this vote is going to be held later on this month. Um, uh, that may well be tied to all of this. Uh, the whole business of how we support the developing world is a very delicate one. Um, if COVID spreads into further than it has already in places, India, South Asia, into Africa, the results could be utterly, utterly devastating and the millions of people dying potentially. Um, so surely Canada, as one of the world's wealthiest nations, has a role to play. Um, I like it when we do things we do well, rather than just send money and rather than just get involved in, in sort of whatever we feel like at the time. Um, we do some certain things very, very well. We do emergency re- uh, relief very well, emergency hospital provision, rebuilding water supplies and things of that sort. Um, in this particular case, we have excellent uh, health care uh, providers. And I'm hoping that we're able to provide help that is uh, consistent with our abilities and that meets the actual needs of developing nations themselves, not the needs of government, but actually the needs of people on the ground. And it's really all about getting it done with the uh, with the knowledge of the Canadian people and with the with the agreement of the of the Parliament of Canada and working out uh, a plan. Just in my view, as a voter, uh, working out a plan that is agreeable to 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 the vast majority of people. And I agree with you. We we do believe that we have a a role to play. But when it's just vague and we're not brought into the Prime Minister's confidence, that is a major issue. And now we saw him at the uh, at the rally at the anti-racism rally in Ottawa walking quite comfortably among people, hordes of people, many people, thousands of people perhaps, and he was out there. Now, at the same time, they argue they can't really have Parliament function the way it normally would because of the pandemic and the concern about spreading COVID-19. You can't have it both ways. You, you really can't, and I think it's one of those interesting things where where other countries around the world, and I'm, everybody in the world is impressed with the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's done a fabulous job of keeping the country informed and keeping them sort of involved in the process. Um, Farrah follows the stuff in Norway and Sweden very quite closely, and the governments there are talking constantly. I mean, if you, if you think in Canada, we have 
had very little uh, uh, sort of public, few public appearances or or conversations with cabinet ministers, with Christina Freeland, who's such an important figure in this particular government. Um, it has been all things been reduced to a daily press conference for a few minutes. And the thing that astonishes me is that the opposition party, um, you would think, would sort of have an automatic response immediately after the government statement that they would be prepared, they would be given a, a text ahead of time, know what the government prime minister was going to say, they'd have an opportunity to respond, and let people know what they're thinking, that the prime minister would do more than give these sort of homilies every once in a while about how we all care about each other, and everything's going great, and here's some more money. Um, then, in fact, he would bring Canadians into the confidence about what's actually going on. We have a real crisis in this country, there's no question. But the crisis is, is regional in nature. It's massive in Quebec, and it's very serious in Ontario. New Brunswick has done an amazing job. British Columbia has done very, very well. The Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut have closed themselves off almost entirely. Some jurisdictions should be opening up and moving much more rapidly than they are. Um, but we sort of were waiting to hear, and now we're talking about $14 billion, but $14 billion to do what? Um, if you actually look at the money, a lot of it's allocated to protective gear, which is necessary, and the cost of restrictions. And then all of a sudden, a 10-day sick leave provision that the NDP extracted as a price of its uh, agreement to cancelling Parliament for months. Um, that last one, you know, it may or may not be a good idea. I'd love to have a national conversation about it. The premiers, in their, when they were asked about this one, said, we're not hearing any requests for this. Where does this come from? This is not something that's on our agenda. So they didn't spring up from the people. It didn't spring up from even from trade unions. It didn't spring up from working folks or small businesses. might have a huge impact on small businesses. Um, it just sort of came out of the, the NDP's sort of package of, of concession deals. So, so I think, you know, the countries that are doing well in this crisis trust their citizens. They, uh, I live in the province of Saskatchewan. Uh, Premier Mo has been very good about sort of keeping people informed on what the rationale for decisions are, when decisions are coming, what the implications are of certain kinds of things. Um, we've done well. Uh, we need the same level at the federal, the same sort of level of trust and, the, and commitment and engagement at the federal level so the Canadians can really understand what's going on. Email from Roger to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. The Conservatives are keeping their powder dry. I get it. I get that, that what, what Roger is saying, but this is not the time to be keeping your powder dry and to be waiting for an opportunity to unload politically on your opposition, which happens to be the minority government led by Justin Trudeau. This is the time to engage the government on behalf of the people of Canada, and particularly, Ken, on, the, on, the, on behalf of the people who voted for the Conservative Party to take a leadership position. Those people wanted them to be the government, not to just... They didn't want them to be the official opposition. They certainly don't want them to be sitting on the side. Lines. One of the things that you see in many countries is actually the almost disappearance of partisanship, where people don't play silly games about, about this party versus that party and next election and this election and, you know, the conversation, when are we going to call a snap election, you know, to, to sort of get the opposition when they're down. Other countries are taking this as a sort of a very serious national tragedy and approaching it in a very different kind of way. Um, I think in this particular instance, the $150 billion that we're going to debate for four hours, which is offensive to me, um, is a massive transfer of wealth from uh, future generations to this generation. 
and, and it really does involve the questions of how we're going to pay it back, when we're going to pay it back, what's the time schedule, um, what are we getting for the money, and are we using it properly? Yes. Could we use yeah. some of it in different sorts of ways? And this is not a time for political posturing on any side. It's not a time to keep powder dry. It's right. a time to have frank and, frank and open conversations Can where we trust Canadians to make good decisions. I really appreciate you coming on the show always. Thank you so much for your time today. Always great talking to you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Suryama School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. One of his books is From Treaty Peoples to Treaty Nation. Professor Ken Coates. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.